0: becoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. preventive medicine podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. All right, in three, two, one. We are now live with another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, the podcast focused on helping you live a healthier life so that you can do what you want to do. I don't know if you all have heard of a little website called WebMD, but today we have Dr. John White, who is currently the Chief Medical Officer of WebMD. Dr. White has had an incredible career already, having worked in the private sector, academia, and in the government as well through the FDA and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. As if he wasn't already interesting enough, Dr. White was also previously the Chief Medical Expert and VP of the Discovery Channel. Despite all of his work in the public light, he's still a practicing physician as a hospitalist in the DC area, being trained in internal medicine from Duke, and is also a huge advocate for public health as seen throughout his career and work. In this conversation we talk about topics in public health, the impact of technology on medicine and the role of the media when it comes to preventive medicine. You all are absolutely going to love this episode. Well, not any more blabbering, here it is. <laughs>
1: So again, Dr. White, we're super happy to have you on the podcast. We've been prepping for this one for weeks. We've been really looking forward to this one. Um, so just kind of you know, piggybacking off of your, that, that uh, very impressive intro, can you kind of just tell us a little bit about how your career got started and yeah. what you're doing right now and where you see yourself in the future? Sure. And you know, I would
2: say when I started my medical training, I thought I was going to be a surgeon. So I never thought that, you know, I would be in the media world, uh, that I would have worked at a TV station. And, you know, I'm much older than you guys, so WebMD didn't even exist, you know, back then. But that's what I thought I would do. And, And the reason why I say that is I've always kept an open mind as to a career path. So even though I wanted to do surgery, I was always interested in health policy. So I went to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad. You know, I was involved even then in some health policy topics and health economics. So I thought, you know, I want to do health policy. And then you realize when you do surgery rotations that aren't virtual, I guess, (laughs) that you don't have a lot of time. You can't be involved in learning these other issues. The hours, you know, are, are crazy. Not that other specialties aren't. But I realized I liked more of those aspects of internal medicine, watching that patient over time, being involved in their care. I actually enjoy knowing about a lot of different conditions and maybe not knowing all the details about, you know, the cornea, but, you know, knowing enough to help to help manage patients. So I really liked internal medicine. And, I, and again, throughout my training, even in, in medical school, you know, I was very interested in health policy. I spent a summer in government and advice that someone gave me was, you know, if you you're not exactly sure what you're going to do, always do a full residency and become board certified. And you know that really has been great advice because I work with a lot of folks in, in health policy. Uh, you mentioned I worked in government. A couple areas of, of why it's important is because one, it gives you that added expertise. People always ask me if I still see patients. And sometimes it's a curiosity, but other times I think it's a way to try to diminish uh, one's value and, and perspective. But I also have learned an enormous amount of still seeing patients now. So while I was at FDA and we did a lot on e-prescribing, you know, I would have to say to a lot of the other colleagues, OK, let me tell you how e-prescribing works. Like this is how it really goes on. Uh, or, or what are physicians really talking about? WebMD also owns Medscape. Many of you may know Medscape. And, you know, just talking to other physicians, learning what they're interested in, um, you know, knowing the CME requirements by having to fulfill it. It really was great advice uh, to become a board certified physician. And I did my residency at Duke um, because I really wanted to become trained as a good clinician. And, and that has served me well throughout my career. So, you know, I thought I'd be a surgeon. I ended up, you know, going into internal medicine. And then internal medicine also allowed me, um, you know, to be involved in, in health policy. And, and I wanted to come and do health policy. And I, and I tease people nowadays when they say they want to do health policy because I'll be like, what's health policy? Well, what does that mean? Uh, and I was in California at the time at Stanford and I thought about staying in, in California. And, and here was what I also recognized is when I, when I told folks that I wanted to do health policy, I still wanted to see patients, but I didn't want to see patients 100% of the time. you learn this. Medicine is very hierarchical. It's a little different now, but everyone was like, John, you know, work in clinic for five years or or 10 years, serve on some quality committees and and very much kind of like you you have to pay your dues. And for me, I was like, you know what? I did an MPH, you know, I I know health services research. I still wanna see patients, but I don't wanna see them, you know, every single hour of every single day. So it was a little bit of a challenge to try to balance it. And I really had to forge my own opportunities. So I ended up coming to Washington DC and working at Medicare uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where there actually aren't a lot of physicians. And at the time that I was there, most of the physicians that were there were disgruntled, and unhappy, and were not interested in the same issues that I were. But but the important point is I'm happy to talk more you know about my career. I don't want to spend you know the whole time talking for you know an hour. Um, I really forged my own opportunities. Uh, I didn't necessarily wait for something to happen. and I had to, you know, go against some resistance of the standard. You know, pay your dues, uh, put your time in uh, and and really finding that balance and, and being open to opportunities.
0: Yeah. I think one of the beautiful things there is that you were involved in so many different things that you have so much different perspective from wherever else you've been that kind of combines together to bring out the best in what you do. Mm-hmm. So whether it's working at a government position mm-hmm. or with uh WebMD, you still see patients. So you bring that perspective to it. When you're seeing patients, you bring the perspective from the higher up, the bigger right. picture things down to that practice. And then you can also translate all of that to yeah. the internet and to delivering e-health and all those different things. So
2: I joke that I've always had like
0: three jobs.
2: And even as a physician, I'm writing a book, I've written some books before, you know, I see patients, you know, I've been involved in in teaching at times. And what I've always been impressed by, there's a lot of students and residents and physicians that you have all these other aspects to your career as well. And I always encourage that. So to be honest, I was delighted to, to get your note because I thought, you know, and I mentioned it to you. I get a lot of requests, you know, for for mm-hmm. podcasts and interviews. I and I'm interested, but the day's limited. I can't do all of them, mm-hmm. um, so I choose. And I definitely chose this one because I thought I want to encourage students and residents and, and folks that are thinking of going into medicine. There's a lot you can do nowadays with a career in medicine, and and, and being a full time clinician is great too, or academic. But you also want to be open to the opportunities.
0: Yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Jason, go ahead.
1: And I think one of the things that I I guess is super unique about, I guess, all three of us is you kind of are paving the way for things Raghav and Mm -hmm. I want to do in in the sense of neither one of us, I think, see ourselves being only Mm -hmm. clinicians in the future. So I think both of us have various avenues and other kind of Mm -hmm. passions we'd like to um, help turn into Mm -hmm. a career. And I think a clinician, being a clinician is still very Mm -hmm. high on the priority list, but it's just not the only thing for Mm -hmm. us. And I think so many people, because medical school getting in is so hard and then, you know. Even just getting through medical school and residency is so hard. People don't really take the time yeah. to cultivate any other skills or or passions, and I think that's a, a big mistake. Well, the I think training discourages it. It's it's very hard to to
2: multitask mm-hmm. and and to manage time. And it's almost as if you have other interests that you're not committed you know to to this idea that that you want to become a good doctor and being a good doctor has many definitions nowadays
0: definitely in a previous podcast we had with my PM&R mentor uh dr aslan Tariq, he mentioned how um even though we have so much going on in our lives mm-hmm. with med school, and then we're just trying to study all the time so we can pass and get into mm-hmm. a good residency and then do well in residency, there's still time to develop all these other skills. Yeah. And then for him, he's mentioned that all the skills that he's developed, like learning how to code, mm-hmm. um, building websites have all been tremendously impactful in his career and mm-hmm. like propelling that sure. and letting him do the things that he wants to do. So I think mm-hmm. Jason and I are on that path, especially with this podcast as well of trying to do things that we uh, like to do outside of, the uh, clinic itself, mm-hmm. like preventive medicine. Mm-hmm.
2: And you so, do more than that. So I, I, you know, I did my research too. <laughs> and bad, you all have outside interests as well, whether it's health and wellness and fitness or communication. So you, you all yeah. have some interests as well.
0: Yeah. So as a leading off question to that, um, because you have so many different perspectives, it's going to be interesting to ask you, what does preventive medicine mean to you?
2: And you know, it's it's interesting because I feel that in many ways we segregate things that and people have always said to me, oh, you could easily, you know, become board certified in preventive medicine because I did an MPH. I did clinical training. I'd only have to do a year of something and then, you know, I could take the boards. And I'm like, you know what? I don't need that title, per se, of having another certification. Because I think much of what I do in internal medicine is preventive medicine, and I'm interested in that, so I'm very focused on making sure that people get screenings. I'm particularly interested in discussing lifestyle of, of healthy eating, and let's be honest, most doctors aren't. They also don't know how to give advice. They tell them, you know, you need to lose weight, you need to go to the gym. That's not helpful to to patients. So. You know, I don't think preventive medicine, sometimes when it's like, oh, well, you go into preventive medicine and that's what you do, or you don't. And and I don't think it's that divided. I think many areas of medicine, we focus on preventive medicine in terms of how do we prevent or delay, you know, various diseases and conditions. Yet at the same time, we're trying to have this 360 degree whole health approach for patients. We know this in the social determinants of health. It's not just about access to the healthcare system. It's about access to fresh fruits and vegetables. It's about access to the ability um, to be able to go outside and be active in in a safe environment. It's not necessarily about going to the gym. Uh, So it's about all those important elements of the total care of, of patients. And even in my role at WebMD, we cover a lot of stuff on heart disease and stroke and cancer. Um, but one of the things I'm interested in, in terms of writing a book is how do we help prevent cancer right? So that's preventive medicine, but that's everything else as well and and the reason why I focus on that is I don't want people to feel that, oh, you're either preventive medicine and you're something else it's it's all a continuum and and sometimes folks in medicine um to be honest, don't respect preventive medicine and and that's a challenge as well.
0: yeah, I think that's a true travesty that so for some reason people don't respect preventive medicine cuz mm-hmm. i think from our perspectives right now when we look at medicine when we see the rotations that we've been on we've uh, been on that preventive medicine is kind of just uh eat right and go to the gym yeah. and they don't think about anything Fair else enough and, and then when
2: people you think, think about, it's easy it's easy exactly.
0: like, it's not yeah, yeah i right. think a preventive medicine visit is where a patient comes in you just tell them to go to the gym yeah. and then eat right and that's mm-hmm. pretty much it right. and then right now when we think about medicine um not really incorporating that preventive medicine aspect we think about just like the acute treatments and interventions yeah. that happen we think about someone going to surgery we think about someone getting prescribed some medication okay. and so forth so like how you've mentioned that medicine in like the actual practice should incorporate everything because the end mm-hmm. goal is um, the patient's health and mm-hmm. the ideal situation is that they don't get put in the situation of whatever they're in in the first place. So mm-hmm. I like That's how you cool. mentioned that.
1: And I, yeah. And I think that one of the unfortunate things is that preventive medicine sometimes carries with it, um, connotations of kind of, uh, snake oil salesmen sometimes, because there are a lot of people who use the yeah. term preventive medicine who aren't trained physicians, um, mm-hmm. or even trained at right. anything and they trying to sell some product or some program or, yeah. um, and I think that's one of the issues too is that it there's people who think of preventive medicine as oh that's just someone yeah. selling some product We're or trying coach. to get someone who's not to, coaches. Yeah.
2: That's not what yeah, it is. Exactly. is it's still exactly. a, you know a very evidence-based, you know, curriculum with with a strategy to have an impact on people's health.
0: What do you think the most important part of preventive medicine is then from your perspective? Or is it kind of just all like a balance that you kind of have to put together?
2: I mean it, Effective communication is key in all areas of medicine, but I think in preventive medicine, it's particularly important. So we don't communicate messages well to patients. We have a parlance in medicine that people don't understand. You know, this is coming up now in antibody testing. Most people don't understand what specificity and sensitivity means. And let's not go down positive predictive value. (laughs) you You know, a two minute television interview, but those are important. But how do we figure out a way as physicians and health professionals to become good communicators? So we explain to patients why this matter. So in preventive medicine, it's not at the time when people have a stroke or have a heart attack that now we say, you know what, you have to implement these measures. And let's be honest, often that only works for a short period of time. We don't help them understand why they might want to do certain things and it's not about you know big brother or being paternalistic and telling them this is what you have to do but helping them understand if you make these changes you may have a longer life you may have a higher quality of life and, and it takes different strategies. There's something called the Blue Zones that you may know around the world. Nat Geo, a competitor of Discovery, did a very good show <laughs> on it, you know, years ago. But they didn't say eat the Mediterranean diet, you know, be active, this amount of time, you know, you need to focus on friends. What they did is they told these great stories. And they showed this great imagery and then they gave people tools of, of what you need to do to, to live to 90 and want to live to 90 as well. And, and I think that's the challenge. And we don't communicate well. So, as you said, going to the gym, that doesn't help anyone or lose weight or you need to eat more fruits. You know, what am I going to do with that? You know, we need to get people uh, in many ways the same type of prescription as we do in terms of, you know, take this cholesterol lowering medicine. So I think a key element there is communication, but then it's also getting that evidence base as well. So to your point, it's not about, um, you know, snake oil and stuff like that. So we're not just telling people to take, you know, a vitamin. Let's talk about what's the evidence for vitamin D and, you know, and who is it for, you know, what are the different aspects of, you know, who might need, you know, a supplement. Reality is most people don't, but there are nuances of, of when that could be the case. And I don't think we traditionally, have communicated that well to patients, and and that has been a challenge in preventive medicine. And we don't talk to them about the importance of screening. You know, many people don't come to their colonoscopy uh, appointments, and then there's multiple reasons why that is. But how do we more effectively communicate that this is gonna have an impact on your life? And the challenge is it might not come for many years, and and we're not used to that. We wanna take a, a pill now and see our blood pressure decrease. We, we don't want to have to decrease salt and, you know, reduce processed food and, and wait, you know, several weeks to see some impact on our blood pressure. But the reality is, in many ways, many of those changes can have as big of an impact as taking a pill.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that I think people have a harder time understanding when it comes to the the doctor, right. patient or physician patient interfaces, that really that building that alliance is such an important part of the process and it can't happen in a one time 10 yeah. minute visit. You know, someone's going to trust the things you say, especially in the preventive medicine sense. They need to know that they trust you and that they have a relationship yeah. with you where you guys, where there can be an honest feedback and where you can, I guess, right. really gauge that they understand how, why these interventions are important and, and how yeah. to implement them. Like you said, I think a lot of the times we just kind of throw recommendations at them instead of, you know, you wouldn't just say, well, take some of this lisinopril or take some of this medication, you know, you, you, same thing with going to the gym, you know, they need a prescription of on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, here's what you're going to do Mm -hmm. at the gym. And here's what the diet looks like. Here's how we're going to help you reduce your caloric intake it's not just well you need to stop eating as much
0: and then it's also about communication from the patient as well because a lot of times it feels like patients don't necessarily tell you about their circumstances or situation okay. so if you're telling them to go to the gym or to eat these kinds of foods and then giving them a prescription they might not have access to those things okay. uh, which also becomes a huge impediment or a yeah. uh, Something they have to overcome to reach there, and then oftentimes yeah. they're like, "I can't overcome this," and then they just don't do yeah. anything. So I think and the communication is important both ways between physician. And it is and about patient. language.
2: Um, you know, everyone doesn't have time to go to the gym based on you know where they live and their situation. So it's really about being active. You know, and and how do you, you know, create a stress on your body. I saw, see, I've do my research, you're tracking carbs or macronutrients or something. (laughs) Okay, that works for you. That doesn't necessarily work for everyone. So we have to give people tools that's gonna Mm. work for their life as well. So those folks that can go to the gym is is great. Some people don't, and I'm sure you know this. I've heard from many patients that have told me over the years they can't, they have to get in shape before they can go to the gym. And it's like, well, maybe that's how it is in DC and some other places, maybe LA, but that defeats, you know, the whole purpose. But in their mind, if that's the case, there's things that they can do at home. There's things that they can do with their body weight. You know, it's always better uh, than doing nothing, which is what majority of people really do. And I've had, you know, patients that say, well, they walk around at work. Okay, that doesn't count. You know, I, I, I try to, you know, tell them that, but most of our, you know, colleagues aren't trained in this and they get frustrated by it because they don't give good information to patients, and then they don't see results, and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They think it doesn't work, but they've never given patients good advice. And let's be honest, it's very confusing as to what you should do. Should you do keto? Should you do Mediterranean? What's the role of intermittent fasting? Um, Patients are confused. And unlike WebMD, there there are a lot of sites out there that give misinformation, and, and that potentially harms patients.
0: I like how you mentioned WebMD. I was just going to ask as a follow-up question to that. um, You also mentioned it earlier as well as like the um, NetGeo. I think Mm -hmm. you mentioned the competitor for what they were doing. To discovery, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. uh, What do you think the role is of these large media corporations in preventive medicine? Like um, obviously we see Mm -hmm. that people watch them and they might have a large swing um, like feel to it for whoever's watching it but do you think there's another role for it what is like how do they fit in
2: yeah you know on webmd people don't search prevent medicine or in Google that's not what they type in but they type in exercise types of exercises they type lots of information on diet diet and fitness is a huge um, content area on webmd because people come to that pregnancy is another area as well that's what people want to learn about the challenge sometimes in social media and and Google searches, those voices that are the most provocative often get the most traffic. And the reason why that was an optimizing search. If I say something crazy about nutrition, you know, some folks are going to believe it and you know comment. But even if I get a lot of negative comments, that's going to raise me up in search because I'm going to have a higher level of engagement. Uh, and on coronavirus, there's been strategies to then minimize. Those voices, even if they're uh, high in search based on levels of engagement, they're wrong information. But how do we get good content to folks and help them understand that? So uh, I'll be honest, it it is a challenge. You know, everybody wants to lose 20 pounds in 20 days. Let's be honest. That's what you're going to click on for more people rather than to say, you know, here's how to eat a Mediterranean diet for which we know there's lots of good data. So it's really about using effective communication strategies and tools. I learned this at Discovery Channel. It's the same thing for WebMD. Headlines matter. You know, you want to be truthful, but you want to get people to click on it. You can have the best content out there, gentlemen. Uh, It's not hard to put content on a site. It's hard to get people to consume that information. Yeah, I and, realized that. <laughs> yeah. And physicians, what I've learned, they want to put so much on there because they think I'm going to build this thing yeah. and people are going to come. And guess what? They're not. Um, they're going to click after, you know, 30 seconds. It's, you know, their videos are 12 minutes. uh, That's just not going to work in this environment. You need to know your audience. And, and you know what? If I taught them one thing about diabetes, that's better than zero. The problem is you can't go in and try to. Think, oh, they're going to watch this and they're going to learn five things or or read this, you know, multi page document online. Most people are mobile. It's not going to happen. So it's about giving them, in a sense, snackable tips. uh, And and how do we do that? And then get Mm -hmm. them to come back and engage. And that's what I think, you know, we're trying to do more and more of.
0: I think it's funny that you mentioned the, um, putting out so much into written content or video mm-hmm. so much and not getting that much engagement because one of the things that I worked on, I think two years ago was mm-hmm. kind of, um, I wrote an ebook that's 112 pages, okay. about how I kind of got in shape and then everything that I read along the way. Cause when I was getting in shape, um, I started off like really fat. And then I got relatively in shape. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of research during that time and I kind of just put all my findings to that ebook and titled it Healthy Forever. And mm-hmm. you think i will get some clicks, but honestly, there's like a lot of citations, a lot of pages, and it yeah. is what it is. But I'm
2: not sure I like the title, to be honest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah.
2: A good editor is always a good idea. Well, let me just say that. For sure. <laughs> we have a lot of editors anyway. <laughs> But but I love the fact that, you know what, so, you put it out there. You tried, you learned, it's iterative. And you know what, by your third or fourth one, it's going to be really good. Uh, and, and that's the point. You can't think that, you know, coming out of the gate, everyone's going to, sh- you know, hit a home run because it doesn't happen. But you, you learn and then you continue um, to progress because really the key is to know your audience. Uh, who's your audience? How do they consume information? What's going to appeal to them? And that's really the strategies. There's one thing I learned at Discovery Channel is and and people always thought the entertainment world is, you know, that's not scientific. That's not academic. And in many ways, I thought it was public health messaging on the shows that I did. Um, You need to know your audience. Lots of good data. So I know that TLC primarily skews towards women. Discovery Channel skews towards men. Animal Planet skews towards family. That's how you you program. And when people would come in with show ideas, and you'd say, "Well, what network should it be on?" and they say, it "Could be on any network," you think, "Okay, we're done," because you don't you don't know our brand, uh, and 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 that's what we need to think about. So you know, I'd say, "Who's your audience? Who are you appealing to? How are you marketing it?" Uh, there, there's a strategy to health communication, and physicians and other professionals in health aren't necessarily good at that. It's it's a different skill set. They just think, "I'm going to write something, and, and people are going to want to read it." because I'm a doctor or I'm into health. Well, that, that's not the case.
1: So with kind of that idea of, of not necessarily the best information taking the forefront on media and now social media being so important, how do you suggest that physicians and other people who would like to be more active in, in the media or social media realm combat the the large quantities of misinformation that are out there and getting tons of clicks yeah. every single and, day. And it's
2: very competitive out there right now. There is a lot of folks on social media putting out some very good information, some not so good information. But I always advise people, again, it goes to back to knowing your audience, um, say on Twitter, it depends You know what's in your little description of who you are. It's really about consistently putting out good content. That doesn't mean putting out 20 pieces of good content a day. It's usually a couple of pieces of good content every day, but being consistent about it. And that's what's a challenge for many people. They do it for a couple of days and they get busy and then they stop. And then you don't hear from them for a week or two. So you want to build your audience. But I always tell people, whatever the platform is, you follow other people that you admire. And you look at what they're posting and sometimes you retweet it or you comment or you look who their followers are and you say, well, I want, you know, followers like that. So it, it does take, you know, some strategies. But the most important part out there is just being consistent and getting good, credible content out there. And, and you need to take time to build it. it. It does take time nowadays.
1: So kind of on that same front, you know, sp- sp- particularly with your work with WebMD. Um, do you notice sometimes it's difficult to to balance the idea of people Googling their symptoms and self-diagnosing versus using these platforms as they're designed to kind of better inform them and and find information about topics they like? But it seems like sometimes we we have to kind of worry about that aspect of things as well. What do you think everyone has
2: Dr. Google? Everybody has this in their (laughs) pocket, you know, I go to it at times. So, you know, my goal at WebMD is to make sure that we have good content out there and that, you know, we have 80 million page views a month. When people search on Google, we're usually number one or number two in search 90, 95% of the time. So people are going to come to our site. But what we're also trying to do is to recognize, um, you know, you have to know the trends and, and, and realize when, you know, you're not going to change it. So people want to search and, you know, Five years ago, people would search rheumatoid arthritis online. They'd print it all out and they'd bring it to me. And, you know, we put it to the side and just do whatever we want. Now we want to have a discussion. And that's a good thing. I'm okay with that. Um, but we have to recognize that, you know, online. So what we're saying is search is changing because they search content, but then they want care. So how do we help them do that? So you search knee pain, you think you have arthritis, it's probably DJD, but maybe you think you have rheumatoid arthritis. You want to see a rheumatologist now, right? Why should you have to wait in the morning to call your doctor? So we can help arrange a telemedicine visit. We can help you know who the rheumatologists in your area. If you search STD symptoms on WebMD, depending upon the state that you live in, we can give you a pop-up or another um, type of notification that will allow you to um, get STD testing. You can talk to a doctor online. A lot of people prefer that anonymity, um, and you can get tested. You know, it's the same thing in some other areas. You know, a lot of folks will—they don't want to wait to see a dermatologist. In some areas of the country, it can take a while. So you might be able to, you know, snap a picture. There are some challenges, and even now with the good cameras, because distance matters and how you shoot a lesion. But you know what? You might be able to do teloderm and, and at least get a preliminary read. So we have to recognize there's also this DIY, what I'm calling in, in healthcare. People want to be their own doctor, and that has some drawbacks. But if we don't respond and give people opportunities to talk about it to their doctor, that's going to be a challenge. And that's the biggest way that ch- search has changed. So, so I get it. People, you know, it's on coronavirus too. You want to search symptoms, and then you think, you have it, and maybe you're right, and maybe you're wrong, but we shouldn't move remove the physician from the equation, and, and that's a big focus of ours. We, we still want to keep the physician involved because we want folks to get the best care. There's a reason why we go to medical school, you know, and spend many years, and you know, in training post medical school
0: yeah i think uh one of the, like the running memes or jokes is that you go to webmd and then everyone comes in with a diagnosis of cancer that's or true
2: <laughs> they've been saying but. that for years. i don't hear that as much anymore uh and we did revise our symptom checker yeah. yeah, i've heard that so much i'm kind of disappointed in you <laughs> but yes yes i have i've heard that
0: yeah a few yeah. times yeah so i not think one far. of the yeah, one of the challenges is kind of when you go to these websites like mm-hmm. WebMD and you're mm-hmm. using them that provide uh, a lot of value to patients, okay. but they're still kind of more obviously evidence based and scientific. Yeah. And when you have a website like that that's providing like maybe a little bit more nuanced uh, like data or suggestions, mm-hmm. and they see someone that's like promoting their content on social media that has something completely different mm-hmm. and that's selling it very well. I think that's one of the problems that we see today where. Um, you were talking about how there's a lot of these other voices that yep. are maybe misinform, misinforming people or um, giving them a very, very bad idea or maybe pushing them towards other theories mm-hmm. of medicine. Um, I think those people tend to have a louder voice, which is why I think what com- it comes back to is that communication that you were mm-hmm. mentioning uh, for physicians mm-hmm. and just being able to be there for the patients mm-hmm. and being able to put yourself out there and communicate. Right. So I think some WebMD it says, yeah. does a fantastic job at that.
2: You know, some of it is the power of storytelling. Um, and we tend to talk in data and use words that people don't know. And what do some of these other voices do? They tell their own story, which may or may not be representative of most. But you know what? I can listen to that. Look why Jenny McCarthy was, you know, in many ways, got a lot of traction on anti-vaccine movement. She told the story, you know, of, of her child. People are going to listen to these stories. And, and we don't often communicate well. We often don't know the power of storytelling. Um, there's many areas on our site that are our blogs where people can tell their stories. They're, they're very popular. And we have to learn some of those you know, health strategies as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Moving forward with that, WebMD is one form of technology, Mm -hmm. but there's so many different other aspects Mm -hmm. that technology is changing healthcare. So what do you think the role is for technology and physicians using technology and delivering care? Because you mentioned telemedicine. Mm -hmm. We have all these websites uh, like WebMD, which is like at the leader of doing that. But then I also saw somewhere online while I was uh, searching uh, for what you've done that you're interested in AI. Mm -hmm. So. What is like the role of technology moving forward and where do you see technology helping physicians in the future? Sure.
2: And that's where, you know, we have to recognize trends and respond to them. So uh, I'm very interested in, in digital tools. So we have to figure out how to use them effectively. So, you know, there's a lot of tools, as you know, there's Fitbits, there's others in terms of how patients can track information. But the challenge that we're having is I don't necessarily want more data points when you come to see me unless they're organized and they're structured. I don't want a lot of unstructured data. And that's how a lot of information is now from consumers. I'd rather see you plotted out on trends over time or or give me what the variance is in terms of your blood pressure or heart rate or whatever. You know, I, I don't necessarily need to see your food diary, but I'd like to see some components of micro and macro nutrients. So the digital tools there are going to I mean, they're here to stay and, and, and we have to figure out how to use them effectively. Some of it is this lack of unstructured data, but I think we're going to make changes in that. You know, telemedicine, you know, it is up probably 80% at least, more than that. The problem is it was very small to begin with. So how do we help utilize that? Te- telemedicine and telehealth are here to stay post-COVID. We've seen their role, but they're not going to be the majority of patient visits you know, over the next couple of years, maybe over time, but I don't think we'll be at 50% uh, a year from now, just because there's still a role to come in. And then what's the role of AI? And a lot of physicians are are scared of AI and they'll say, well, we're not gonna need radiologists anymore and we're not gonna need some aspects of cardiology. But for those of us that are very interested in it and involved with it, we really say that AI is not gonna replace physicians, but AI is gonna replace physicians who don't use AI in, in their medical practice. So we like to think that we're the best you know, predictors of things, but there's a role of artificial intelligence. We've seen that in terms of diabetic retinopathy, that they can look at these scans and, and they can do it better. I, Eric Topol is a big proponent of artificial intelligence. He talks about how you know, I can use AI to tell whether a human eye is male or female. And if I ask just you know, 100 um, physicians, actually only 50% will get it right. That's luck. Right. AI can predict it through looking at, you know, thousands of things, um, you know, with 95 percent accuracy. Okay, but I don't know if that's relevant in clinical practice. Does that really matter? But if it's able to to look at subtle changes and multiple factors and tell me whether this person is at risk for lung cancer. That's concern. If they can look at these huge databases and be able to more effectively tell me what are the predictors, whether or not they're going to return to the ER rather than looking at, you know, seven criteria that we typically look at that has value. So we need to embrace AI. I, I know a younger generation of, of physicians are, are more receptive to that and the older ones are, are kind of um, not necessarily fearful, but a little distrustful. Um, it's, it's here to stay. I, I think the challenge has been people will say AI will make our lives easier. Uh, and for those of us that are older, will say, you know what? That's what they said EHRs would. EHRs are going to make our lives easier. And it didn't. So, okay, now AI is <laughs> going to make my life easier. It's just going to make my life harder. It's going to add more work. Um, but we have to embrace technology. It's here to stay. And for those that don't, they're they're going to be swept aside. Uh, so I'm a big proponent of how do we use AI, how do we use all these great digital tools? But simply because we can measure something doesn't mean that it's gonna be useful for our clinical practice. But I think in the field of preventive medicine it will be great. AI could, you know, be very helpful in terms of understanding, you know, what are the right predictors and risk factors to really improve, you know, cancer screening, to provide us better tools to help people you know, lose weight. I don't want to do all that tracking that you're doing. (laughs) And, you know, it can help me understand what are the right exercises for me, right? It's all about personalized medicine. It's all about precision medicine. That's really the term that the FDA and others like to use.
1: And I, like one thing I've heard that i I really like is it's almost liking the idea of if you take someone who's a really good race car driver and you put them in a better car, yeah. they'll be a better race car driver. So I think you know if we look at it from that scope and you take doctors who are very mm-hmm. well trained in both medicine and adequately trained with technology, I think that you, You improve patient outcomes, you probably will end up removing a lot of um, clinical error, physician error, that just just happens. And I think AI can almost be a safety net for us in a certain way, and that can be really beneficial for us in the long term and to the patients in the long term.
2: Right. No, I think it's right. And, you know, the challenge has been, you know, again, in this collection, so I'm sure you get a lot of notifications on your phone as well. I don't necessarily want a gazillion notifications when I log in Um, I do my clinical time at Kaiser, you know, on epic, you know, some of those could be um, lower level practitioners who could automatically be rerouted to them rather than for me to have to look at, um, you know, prescription reorders or or patients calling uh, the call center. Uh, Everything doesn't have to be determined by a higher level practitioner. And we need to figure out those strategies
0: as well. Definitely. Go ahead, dude.
1: Do you, sorry, do you believe that, so in this whole idea of Mm -hmm. our podcast being preventive Mm -hmm. medicine, do you see a future where preventive medicine takes a a much larger role or do you think we're a long ways away from something like that where we see a paradigm shift in uh, physician incentives to to provide more preventive medicine or patient incentives from an insurance standpoint to be more preventive? Sometimes I feel like we
2: need a better term for preventive medicine because it's kind of viewed as, oh, it's not as scientific or it's not as hard and, you know, it's not as resource intensive. And and that's not true because I think good clinicians all practice preventive medicine. But I think the principles of it are going to be more important as we use AI to really find predictors and determine risk right we're really talking much more about risk stratification look at where we are in cardiology and in terms of risk scores i think we see more and more of that in terms of neurology in terms of stroke those are all preventive medicine whether it's primary prevention or secondary prevention as we hear more and more discussion about precision medicine what are the prescriptions that i should take for me personally based on my underlying risk, that's going to make me live longer. So I think we're definitely going to see a greater role of preventive medicine, but we need to communicate that story better. Because as soon as you say preventive medicine, let's be honest, surgeons are going to roll their eyes, orthopedics, you know, some people are. But cardiologists, they're doing preventive medicine. Um, in in many of their patients. So is neurology and and certainly in cancer and in in primary care, in internal medicine and family medicine, in pediatrics, we're we're doing all of those things. Maybe we're not labeling it as such, but we're definitely doing it. So I do think we have to think through, you know, how do we emphasize that and, and bring greater awareness to it?
0: I think one of the reasons for that question is that when you kind of look at the uh, patient to physician interaction when mm-hmm. you are in that uh, office, is that this amount of time spent on prevention versus acute care is not kind of balanced in the way where yeah. you can see it. Whereas we do have that like risk stratification for cardiovascular disease and mm-hmm. all these different things, but. Um, To kind of prevent that in a sense, there's other interventions like the nutrition and Mm -hmm. exercise and all of that that we've been talking about. And currently, it doesn't seem physicians either, number one, have training to talk about that as much. And number two, um, I was doing some research on Mm -hmm. like the barriers to preventive medicine and Mm -hmm. like lifestyle interventions. And one of them is that a lot of physicians, I think it's 70 to 80%, say that it's because it's not incentivized. Like it takes a lot of time to tell the patient how to do this properly if they know how to do it. Like if the physician knows how to communicate right. it, but even if they do spend that time, they don't get compensated for it because it's okay. not an ICD ten code to tell someone how to exercise.
2: That's that's exactly right. In in terms of you know reimbursement, procedures are reimbursed at, at much higher. If I diagnose you know an ICD ten code with hypertension. I'm going to get paid more than i'm going to get paid for obesity counseling and there's some of that you know diabetes is a little different because medicare created a separate benefit category years ago for diabetes education but what happened is we created a whole you know area of of diabetes educators uh so physicians didn't do that because typically they're not good at it but i think you're right i think they need greater training in providing this information and you know, maybe I have 12 minutes for a visit, you know, to go over with them to take, you know, dietary history and to talk about these things. You know, if they're not convinced that it's going to work uh, on either side, the, the physician or the patient, then it's going to be this self-fulfilling prophecy that it doesn't work. But you're right. We have to improve reimbursement uh, to provide these preventive medicine services. I absolutely agree.
0: Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I think, um, most of the time, I think one of the main shifts that we have to have to, to get Mm -hmm. to that preventive medicine as being the forefront is that shift in reimbursement. And then people chase where the money is. And even if it's like not thinking about the patient, which we should always put the patient first. Mm -hmm. And I think preventive medicine definitely does that because you always want to prevent someone from being in a negative situation Mm -hmm. where they have hypertension and then um, we can control that with medication great because a lot of patients don't necessarily mm-hmm. have the time or want to at this point control that with lifestyle measures, which right. you easily could. Um, but I think putting that patient in the situation where they don't have to have any intervention, preventing it is obviously better, yeah. but we just have to kind of align the mm-hmm. current system and where uh, physicians lie in that spectrum yeah. to probably get that going.
2: But you know, there's also a mindset that you have to keep in mind on the part of patients. So, Patients are used to coming in and getting something, maybe a prescription, an exam, whatever. If I'm telling them go exercise, and I'm not saying that's the right way to say it, but that is how a lot of physicians say it, right? They're going to leave frustrated, right? What did I get? You told me to lose weight. They, get, they know they have to lose weight. You know, you told me to exercise. Why did I pay a $20 copay? You know what did i get out of this um so it's also the expectations of patients as well that's why some folks have advocated in preventive medicine we actually give them a prescription like literally write it mm-hmm. down for patients for exercise or nutrition but then you can also wait six months and be like oh i'll see you in six months let's see how you did in you know changing your diet how does how, how that Yeah,
0: because people fall off in like a week to two weeks if it's too difficult. And they're like, I'm not going to do this. What are you going to do in six months after that?
2: And in some ways, why has intermittent fasting worked for some patients? Maybe it's just total reduction of calories. But you know what? It's very prescriptive. So there's different strategies. People can follow it. And you know, okay, don't eat after seven PM. And I was, I was trying to do it for a while. And I was like, Ooh, these times are too long. Maybe I'll just do seven to seven. And people were like, that's not intermittent fast. <laughs> <But, laughs> that's just, you know, cause it's supposed to be longer than 12 and 12. Uh, like that's just good, you know, practice, but that's easy to understand. Right. Rather than I'm going to be honest. and I, I wrote a book on nutrition. I'm interested in nutrition. Um, But can I, can most people really estimate? Some days I can't, what I just ate for breakfast? What's the, you know, the fats, carbs, you know, protein contribution? Most people can't operate like that. So that's why we have to give them simple tools that are evidence based. And in some ways, intermittent fasting does some of that. You know, keto diet, I still get questions about that. But in many ways, it's very prescriptive. People know what they can eat and what they can't eat. And we don't often do that in medicine. We don't do that in exercise. And and let's be honest, there's more and more data about what type of exercise people need to do to gain a health benefit. And, you know, we see it when I I see a lot of folks that are really just interested in cardio, and then they're wondering why, you know, they're not seeing increase in bone mineral density and other stuff. Well, they're they're not doing, you know, resistance training. But you and I might use that
1: term. Most people don't know what that means. Um, so, So it's a challenge. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. And I think, you know, one of the things that just to kind of piggyback off of what you just said, when I was uh, getting my bachelor's in nutrition a few years back, there was a big study that was ongoing that um, the results came out, uh, actually, I think actually while I was in medical school, and it basically showed that of all these major diets, mm-hmm. they all work, mm-hmm. all of them work. Yeah. So I think, like you said, it's more of about, I guess, assessing the ability and the desire of the patient in front of you to do these things, right? If they don't know what a protein, carb, yeah. or fat is, are you going to say, hey, track your proteins, carbs, and fats? But if they are very well educated and they're determined, they already have an idea of what they'd like to try and you can guide them along what maybe the, the, they see success doing. I think that's, um, again, it's like that pinpointed prescription of like, well, this person wants to try keto. I don't necessarily think they want it, that they should, but here's how I'm going to guide them and right. be, to help them be as successful as they can. So what would you tell them, Jason? What, what, what do you want to tell people to,
2: to eat healthy, right? Because that's, that matters in some ways even more than exercise for weight loss. There's other reasons what do you tell
1: people? Oh, for sure. So I, I always try to tell them the basics of, okay, no matter what you try, it all comes down to the basic principle of if your goal is to lose weight, you have to be taking in less calories than you burn. And then I'll usually assess, okay, do you know what calories are? Do you, have you tracked them in some way mm-hmm. before? Have you tried to manage yeah. it before? And then, um, and then kind of just go from there and assess, you know, what, what kind of diets it what's what's their diet like right now? Um, how can we try to fit, a, a current uh, calori- calorie deficit into the paradigm how are we going to do that? We we gonna do that in 12 minutes exactly that's that is the hardest part is trying to talk about all I this really in five feel minutes that in ahead of time so
2: i'll be honest i always say to patients what did you eat this morning <laughs> Just a standard line. and they're always like oh today i didn't have time <laughs> i had a donut this morning then i say what you have last night and they're like mm, you know i don't remember and i always say to them i'm not making a judgment I'm just, you know, just want to know. And they're like, oh, you know, last night I was rushed. I had, you know, some leftover pizza. And then you're like, that, that's, you know, because sometimes they want to please you too as, as patients. Mm-hmm. I've had patients, that will be like, you know, they're, they're very overweight and they'll tell me they eat salads. And I'll be like, you're, you're not eating salads.
0: With how much dressing <laughs> they could if, be with dressing.
2: Yeah. Yes, but still they're doing more than salads, right? Yeah. But people want not to say for sure. that. So, you know, I think part of that is, you know, we push people like, what have you eaten today? What have you eaten, you know, yesterday? But then where are the tools that we can use? So when they come into the visit, then we can, you know, look the information over that's presented in a useful way. That's where I think digital tools can work. I think that's where we can say, you know what, we're limited by time. And you know what, that's probably not going to change. So how do we fit that information in and then give people good advice? And and you had a very good point about you need to understand where people are, you know, in their journey and everyone's at a different point. I always say to patients and they all, half of them tell me they've never heard this. I say, you know what, if you lose five pounds a year. That's just a pound every other day. You know, in 10 years, you're going to be 50 pounds less. And I say most of your friends and family members are going to be 50 pounds more. Like that's all you need to focus on. I'm like, just stop, just stop eating, you know, eat less of what you're already eating. Then we can make changes. But you know what? Nobody wants to think like that. And and you know, that's the trend. People gain weight over time. Our basal metabolic rate decreases. If we do the exact same things that we're doing now, you're going to gain weight as you get older. But nobody wants to think like that. So what happens? They might lose 10 pounds, uh, but then they're going to gain back 15. We know this time and time again. If I say, you know what, just lose a pound every other month, even in five years, you're going to be 25 pounds less.
0: That's I think you're easy to do. Yeah. I think you were adjusting at the, uh, like the calories that I was tracking right now, mm-hmm. but based on the conversation that we've been having so far about like the nutritional awareness or the food awareness kind of that people have, I think that tracking is an incredibly powerful tool that everyone personally, I think everyone should do at some point in their life because it gives you such an awareness of what you're putting into your body. As There's soon someone- as I
2: read you were doing that, I was like, ah, I'm <laughs> <laughs> click. Let me look some. Like like, somewhere else.
0: Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. But, like, when you have people eating peanut butter, like making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you could have them, they could be putting like four tablespoons of peanut butter on there and not even knowing it, thinking that's Mm -hmm. one serving, one. Yeah. one servings like two tablespoons and it's a very calorie rich food. So I think at least for some period of time, everyone should be tracking their food so that they know what is in the food that I'm eating, yeah. how does it affect my calorie limit as Jason was alluding to, because it all comes down mm-hmm. to calories at the end. And then once I have some sort of foundation of knowing what the contents of food are, knowing what's calorie dense, where I get my nutrients and so forth, then You kind of advise them a little bit better, but that also comes down to that 12 minute visit that we're talking about where you don't have time to teach them how to track macros. Cause even just from reading a post of mine, you're like, no macro
2: is
1: tracking, are are you tracking your food? I do. I track I've tracked everything I've eaten for the last 10 years. I might, I might be a bad example just because um that's something I've I've done for a long period of time. Um, interestingly, the, the data does bear out that patients tend to succeed more when they are tracking um in some way, not necessarily so those strict those tracking. Those that of, follow through and do it. Yeah. exactly. What you had yeah. for breakfast this morning? For breakfast this morning, I had a protein bar and a protein shake, but that's just kind of an easy on-the-go, typical everyday lazy breakfast yeah. for me. But, um, I think one of the things that like, kind of, I think what, what the goal is, no matter who you're talking to is to have them understand the basic principle of, of in terms of weight gain, weight loss, calories are the ultimate, the really the ultimate decider of that. I can tell them um, eat more and, fruits
2: and vegetables. Everyone can understand that, whether or not they yeah. can afford it, eat more fish. People don't like, they think, Fish is too hard to cook. They don't know where to buy it. It mm. all depends, you know, where one lives. I mean, that too has, you know, tremendous impact. And we know, so we know as, you know, physicians, those are fewer calories, right? So if they replace meat with fish, that's going to have benefits all over it. We have more vegetables. Mm. You know, the challenge is there's some data that shows when we tell people to track calories, they focus more on processed food because, That's where the nutrition label is on there, right? So Mm -hmm. they can track it better. But that's not necessarily helpful. Whereas, you know, nowadays you can track fresh fruits and vegetables. But now, if we tell patients they have to weigh it, we can't make it. We can't make it too hard, you know. But it's even challenging when you say there are so many people that think of bagel you know, is, is better than a donut. And I tell them it's, it's the same, Mm. you know, a scone is a fancy word for a donut
0: Um, and you
2: think, well, everybody knows that. And it's like, no, they don't, you know, some of the instant oatmeal is, is not that, you know, nutritious. Um, and don't get into whether it's whole grains or, you know, seven grains, you know, people are trying, uh, to do well it's just the challenge and then you know i remind people i i had a patient once who told me i was like oh you know you need to eat more fish as i said i was she's like i don't like fish and i'm like you need to eat more fruit she's like oh it's not in my area i told her you need to drink water and she actually said to me i don't i don't like water and like, i'm gonna make progress i'm like if you just stop drinking soda you're gonna lose Right. calories and i thought okay there, there's a challenge here which is going to take more than 12 minutes when you're telling me you don't like to drink water and i get it i knew i know what you meant you know some mm-hmm. people don't like to drink water as part of the meal but but i have convinced some people which i did it myself to drink sparkling water instead of soda and you still have some of that impact of the flavor and and some uh patients have made progress with that
1: yeah. And I think, you know, without getting too in the weeds on um, just, we could do a whole podcast about nutrition. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> um, I would love it. I think that, um, one of the things that we kind of have to just be mindful of as well is, I think like you were, you mentioned before is that patients kind of come to us in sense that we're going to judge them based on their yeah. activities, because that's what the, that's their view of what a doctor does. Well, stop smoking, yeah. stop drinking so much, eat better, blah, blah, blah. But I think one of the important things we could do is take judgment value off okay. of food and say like, I'm not telling you to, because this idea of clean eating or there's good foods and bad foods are so context independent. And I think, Diet itself is so context dependent, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like a great example is the extremes of things, like Michael Phelps eating ten thousand calories a day. Well, you're not going to do that with brown rice and chicken breast and broccoli. So, but his context is much different than the vast majority of patients we're going to see who barely get off Mm -hmm. the couch. So, I think you know, in in terms of educating them, like you said, on the broader principles of why we want them to eat certain foods, it's not necessary that they should feel guilty about their diet or guilty about the foods they're eating right now. It's more about okay. Let's objectively look at this, and let's find the easiest way to get from point A to point B with you. And we can't give them too much information at
2: one time. People can't make too many changes at once. I was going to ask you what you ate for breakfast, but you've had enough time to think of a good answer. <laughs>
0: it's not. What did you have for dinner last night? What did you have for dinner? We made some uh, cacho e pepe. Okay. First time making it, it was pretty good. Okay. What did you have for yeah. breakfast? Uh, for breakfast I haven't had anything yet.
2: See, see, come on, guys.
0: <laughs> I try to save my, I try to save my calories for later on in the day because I have a larger appetite and like to eat a larger amount of food at one meal. So you like
1: got pseudo-intermittent fasting. Yeah, that's true. But for most people,
2: we want to get them to eat their calories earlier in the day. So that's you know, that's where it's, it's highly
0: personal. Individual dependent, yep. yep. Uh, so we are fifty-six minutes in. We want to be respectful of sure. your time. Um, so I guess the last question that we always ask the, uh, guests, whoever's on is if someone runs into a coffee shop and you have like two minutes and they ask you, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them?
2: I tell them it's really about healthy eating. I think that exercise is important as well, but food is medicine. And if they think about, um, they're choosing whether to eat a potato chip or an orange, we know that eating an orange is going to have a much more beneficial impact on them uh, than a potato chip. So I really, I'm a big proponent of exercise. I wish I exercised more, but I do know that the data shows that if they start thinking about food as medicine, they'll make important lifestyle changes and it has a bigger impact overall on weight loss and it has other aspects as well. So it's, it's really about healthy eating.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And uh, we want to thank you for being on this podcast. Sure. We have, we actually prepared a couple more questions. So we'd love to have you go on ahead. another. Go if ahead. You're, I'm
2: going sure. to answer both first, though. What's your advice? What's your two minute advice?
0: Oh, flipping the tables on us. Jason, let me <laughs> so I have time to think. <laughs>
1: uh, I would say my two minute advice is to just get the ball rolling like, look at, look at where you're at now, think about goals and think about things you'd like to achieve or a lifestyle that you'd like to live and take one small step today that leads you towards that goal and try to do that every single day. And I think, um, that, for it just kind of like off the cuff, I think that there's like, I would agree with Dr. White that I would probably tend towards my own bias of nutrition being the most important thing. Um, but I think for most people, so much of it is just the idea of starting and starting and keeping yeah. it going. So whatever it is, whether it's you start with a better diet or you start with exercise, start with something today and let the snowball yeah. effect start
0: happening. Yeah, I think Jason and I are on the same page with that. And uh, we had a conversation with Ed Cohn. I don't know if you've heard that name. Greatest powerlifter. Mm-hmm he was on this podcast earlier and a lot of what I say is influenced by him cause I learned a lot from him, but okay. it's kind of just getting the ball rolling where a lot of times if you start with a very small step and maybe it's just like going mm-hmm. for a five minute or replacing all of your, or drinking more water, not Mm -hmm. even replacing soda, but just doing something. And it gives you more of a idea that I can do this and I can make these Uh small changes. Mm -hmm. And then you let those small changes compound over time. And before you know it, after like a year, five years, 10 years, they're in a much better spot than they were at the beginning. So, So
1: Dr. White, I have a question for you Mm -hmm. in terms of this may be a little bit more of philosophical in nature, but do you think that in terms of how a patient views themselves, So one of the things we talk about sometimes on our podcast is building resilient patient yep. population. Um, so do you think that how a patient views self is, is ultimately the most important thing in terms of making the right decisions going forward? Absolutely. Um, and I've seen
2: this more in male patients and female patients. I'm not trying to be uh, sexist, um, I've often have told you know Kaiser is very good about giving patients their BMI and, and I told a uh, um, and this happens at least a couple times a year and I tell the the male patient that you're you're overweight and I, I'm not joking six times out of ten at least at least more than half will say to me no I'm not fat I'm muscular and I'll be like you're not like I don't say that. that <laughs> in the other areas, a Waiting lot of overweight patients do not see themselves as overweight. It's much more pronounced in men. So I see myself as muscular. I'm not going to make those changes because I think I'm healthy, and I've seen that time and time again. Um, so how they view themselves is, is very important. It also goes into the misinformation when when people read all this about vaccines, will be like, "Well, vaccines cause autism. Vaccines cause cancer." I'm not going to take it because in, in their mental framework, um, they don't believe the data. But you're absolutely right. How the patient sees themselves matters a lot. I mean, this comes up too a lot. Uh, so I often see patients that are other doctors' patients that I'm filling in for, and in diabetes, you know, type two, predominantly overweight, and I tell patients that. If you lost 10, 20 pounds, you probably could come off, you know, your metformin Um, and it's relating to your weight. And I, I hear this all the time from patients who say to me, I've been overweight for 20 years. I've only had diabetes for two years. And they're not making that connection that their weight Mm -hmm. is causing it, or they know, you know, they're... Grandfather was much more heavy than they were and they never had diabetes, so they don't make that association. Um, so it definitely has an impact. And then it's, it takes a lot of time to, to get them to change that perspective.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to communication, once Mm -hmm. again, on what the patient has been sold, what their experiences are, um, what they see on social Mm -hmm. media versus their own family versus their own lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to communicating the patient, um, like how they see themselves and their world versus what the physician sees and what they recommend. So it's definitely different there.
2: I had a patient um, last year that came in with, you know, very severe knee pain. And, you know, I'm asking about all these issues. And then then finally, she mentions (laughs) that she's a marathon runner, like near the end. Right. And I'm like, and I'm not joking. You can't make this up. And I'm like, do you think you're actually say it like this? Do you think your knee pain could be relating to your running? And she's like, no because you know, I've been running for 10 years and I've never had pain. And it's really only been these last few weeks. And I'm like, because it's, you know, a, you know, cumulative over time. Yeah. And I'll be honest, she did not think it was relating to her running and she was not going to stop her running. Uh, and I'm not saying she had to stop it completely. But, you know, I, I've seen that a, a couple of times.
0: Dr. Roy, how much time do you have? We don't, we have a couple more questions. You don't want to hold it too long. If you want to ask two more questions, that'd be fine. All right. We'll, we'll go a more lighthearted route. (laughs) So uh, we were, um, Thinking of at the Discovery Channel, mm-hmm. it's very interesting to see that they have like a chief medical expert. Mm-hmm. What does that entail? Because usually when you think of Discovery Channel, you're not thinking yeah. of medicine or anything related to that. So. so
2: I started at Discovery Channel and they actually had another channel called Discovery Health Channel. And I started my career at Discovery on Discovery Health Channel, where that's when uh, I didn't know I was pregnant, started 200 uh, pound tumor, born without a face, <laughs> man, which was HPV. Um... I didn't know I was pregnant, as I said. Um, So I started there and they really needed, you know, uh, content expertise as well as keeping everything on track. Um, And then that was uh, created into the Oprah Winfrey Network as part of a joint venture with Oprah. And I didn't really feel that her view of health was the same as mine uh, of health. So I had the opportunity to move to the Discovery Channel. And for a long time, we had a weekend time slot of health and medical programming, typically on Saturday and Sunday around 7 a.m., 8 a.m. So I ran that programming for years uh, and then would be involved in in some other uh, shows when they would have some medical content, Honey Boo Boo. uh, (laughs) Uh, So they don't do as much medical programming and health program anymore, but a lot was we actually had a time slot of of health programming which was helpful and, and they have a great show on tlc called pimple popper i don't know if oh, I, yeah. you know which is really you, know, you just think you know that's a good show when you can turn the volume off you don't even have to hear what they're saying it's like, it's like, <laughs> just watch the show these? in the background <laughs> yeah, how do you find these people and you just look at it and it's like oh,
0: yeah yeah i think uh it's very interesting that there's like physicians like your role in media i think what? One of the ways that we can promote preventive medicine is through that route. Where right now I have shows like Dr. Pimple Popper, mm-hmm. where there's there's one thing. But if you can make preventive yeah. medicine more sexy or appealing yeah. in a way, then I think that could go. And
2: uh, that leads to my first point. Ahead. You have to show the initiative and you have to be creative. Don't think that anyone's gonna come to you and say, you know, you should be on this show or that show. Maybe but you're going to have to come with those ideas and, and and pull it through.
1: And then kind of just my, my last question for you is, I mean, I, I imagine you're a, an incredibly busy man. How do you take care of yourself? So, you know, a lot of the times physicians probably are doing a yeah. pretty poor job as uh, leading by example in terms of taking care yeah. of ourselves. So what, what do you, what do you do to take care of yourself? And I'll tell you, I, I have two young children and sometimes I look off
2: to the side because at any moment they could break in <laughs> 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 two young, adorable boys, seven and five. And I, I'd like to think like, why aren't I, you know, at a better weight because you're like, I'm always running around with them. And, and then maybe that's because we don't balance it well. And we eat a lot of their Crappy food, sadly, that children have uh, when they don't finish their their plate. But I'll tell you what what I have tried to do, and, and I'm not good about being at home. So you know, I try to exercise three four times a week. But personally, I like going to a gym, so that works for me. I like going to see other people. I like using machines. We don't have a home gym. I could get one, but I'm like, that's not going to work for me because my kids are going to come down there and follow me, and I'm not going to have my you know, 45 minutes of free time. So I I do try to do that. And I'll be honest, I traditionally have scheduled that into my calendar so I can do it. So before we used to live close to a gym. So it was very easy, a five minute walk. Now I'm a 20 minute drive. So I actually schedule it. So I make a priority and I look at my calendar usually on Sundays and say like, when can I go? Um, and then I am trying to do a better job at eating. And I'll tell you, being at home all the time under quarantine, I, I know it's harder because you, you know, I wouldn't normally eat something at 10 o'clock at night. And sometimes when I'm still up, because it's easier <laughs> than ever, I do. Yeah. And you're limited by what's around you. But I have made that conscious effort to eat more fruit. Uh, I eat oatmeal this morning, and I really have made that <laughs> effort to all eat right. oatmeal. <laughs> Um, and I've actually had some issues with blood pressure over time and I've done my own test. I saw when I really look at, uh, packaging and I see the salt content and choose not to do that and then measure my blood pressure, it's better. And, and I'll tell you, like a lot of the things you'd think, well, I'm going to go have a, a sandwich at Panier or en Bon Pain or Pret a Manger. And, and I know you two know this bread has a lot of sodium. But most people don't know that, and they think, "Oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. have this, you know, fresh mozzarella and pesto sandwich <laughs> instead of a an hamburger." And then it's like, "This is 970 milligrams of sodium." Yeah, uh, it's well, not I'm more than that. A pressed juice, you know, and that's you know 32 grams of sugar. So it's it's really you know I focus more on on uh, trying to. Figure out ways to eat healthy with children who don't always like to eat the same things that adults do. But I'll be honest, I've been trying different things when I'm home, whether ordering shakes that you can. But I I do check the labels on those things. So those ones that have very high sodium um, or very high sugar content, even if it's fruit, I'm like, I'm going to I compare. And that's what I do tell patients. I'm like, so despite I know you guys like to look at macronutrients and all of that. I tell patients, you know what? You can look at two yogurts and you may not even know what the right number is for protein and sugar, but you can compare. And if one has, you know, 22 grams, that French vanilla, which is going to have, you know, a lot of sugar versus eight, pick that one. So you don't even have to know. And then add your own blueberries in. And you know what? People can remember that. And they're always like, I never thought about it that way. So I'm trying to eat healthy and be more active. I'm giving myself a little bit of a pass. During the quarantine, but as as you move along in your career and you have family responsibilities, you do have to recognize I have to prioritize this and I have to figure out how to fit it in and be consistent. So sometimes I do use some trackers where you can see how many times you went to the gym and, and really try to. Plan over time, but it does take a, a commitment and a priority. Nowadays, I've been looking at steps. I don't normally look at steps, but uh, I saw one day I only had like twenty two hundred steps, and, I, and I'm like, that's not good. Uh, the but, quarantine life for sure. Yeah. So now I'm trying to 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 walk around, even if it's in the house or outside.
0: Yeah. Um, I think we can wrap it up with that. All right. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the podcast. I really really appreciate it. It's been an honor to have you on the podcast, Dr. White. Thank you so much for
1: joining us. As a medical
2: student, I wasn't thinking about podcasts and and communications. I congratulate both of you for thinking, you know, in, in these areas and really wanting to understand. Really, it's about communicating. To consumers and communicating to your colleagues, so you know I congratulate both of you uh, for what you're doing in the initiative and and you know making the time to do this as well. So I was happy to help yeah. and happy to to come back again and I and I follow you on a uh, Twitter as you know now. <laughs> yeah.
0: I was just going to ask if you would be okay with coming on again because our conversation could definitely last Absolutely. another hour. Oh yeah, we so,
1: definitely have. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of room for okay. more podcast time. I'm not sure if but, I'm uh,
1: following Jason on Twitter. Am I following you on Twitter? <laughs> I don't, I'm not big on Twitter. Uh, so I'll be, once we start using our YouTube. like our uh, podcast Twitter, I'm going to be more active All on right. there. Um, All right. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's not an educational it's not Instagram, it's just my probably. personal one. But, you know,
2: well, I don't do Instagram. I, I, I only use the WebMD handle and I thought about it. I have to have some limit at some point, but I thought about it. Um, So, what's your yeah. Instagram handle? Maybe I'll look for you.
1: It's just Jay Jay Garrett zero four one. It's like not even in a. That's it's not even a promotable That's, that's, name. Not, that's too complicated. <laughs> yeah, you like I said, I I haven't really tried to branch out into the public social media
2: world. Yeah, and yet, I get it. So. It's harder as
1: a student when you're thinking about interviews and and stuff like
0: that. Yeah for well, sure. Is there anything we've, Jason's plugged his Instagram. Is there anything you want people to like go <laughs> towards? I know WebMD, everyone already goes towards yeah, that. Yeah. You
2: know, I'm on Twitter, as you know, at, at Dr. John White, uh, always happy to, to engage. So, uh, feel free to reach out again.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Have a All, good right. Day, guys. All right. have a Thank you, Dr. White. Thank you. Hey, Bye everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the preventive medicine podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Prevent Podcast. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thank you all for listening and we will see you next time.